From Acts chapter 10. While talking with Cornelius, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, three days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Right. We have a purpose statement as a church that we exist to practice the way of Jesus together for the renewal of all things. And what I love about this purpose statement is that it is completely impossible. Like the renewal of all things, like everything in all the earth and and in the heavens and in the cosmos, we want to see the renewal of all things, like that's completely impossible for us. And yet at the same time, it's a sure promise uh, that God will bring about the renewal of all things. He, is, he has told us, he has, he has paid the price, it, it will happen. And so the question for us becomes, as, as we wait for that to happen, how do we practice the way of Jesus together toward that end? How do we participate in the renewal of all things as we wait for it to happen in all its fullness? And because of that, we're constantly asking, what will the renewal of all things look like? What will it look like when, when Jesus returns and God restores all things to himself, when, when evil and sin is destroyed forever and every tear is wiped from every eye except the happy tears? Uh, like when we receive our resurrection bodies and we're perfectly healthy and community is perfect with no division and we're on this redeemed earth and everything is perfect and beautiful, what will it be like? And whatever it's like then is what we should pursue and work toward now. 
So in that place, Jesus is glorified, and so we want to glorify him now. Community is, is perfect, and so we want to promote that kind of community here. There's no injustice in that place. We want to work against injustice with everything we have. And that place is wonderfully diverse with people from every tongue, tribe, and nation worshiping the Lord, and so we want to promote diversity now. What this means is that we want to be a, a gospel-centered, word-saturated, spirit-filled church that's made up of wildly different people, like all different sorts of people. And so male and female, black, Asian, Latino, white, I mean, people who are politically progressive, politically conservative, younger people, less younger people, uh, professional, blue-collar, families that send their kids to public school, families that send their kids to private school, families that homeschool. We want every type of diversity represented because when we have unity on the gospel and when we are immersed in the love of God, then we are free to, to embrace and even celebrate the differences that we have between us. I mean, we have three left-handed people on our staff, so we're out here breaking barriers, you know. Nothing is too much for us. But the new creation will be a place of incredible, beautiful diversity where there's incredible oneness and unity because of what God has done through his son and the reconciling work of the cross. We will have this beautiful diversity and so let's work towards it now. The phrase that I love is that we want to be a place of redemptive kingdom diversity. And that phrase comes from Jarvis Williams, who's a New Testament scholar. Redemptive kingdom diversity. Not just diversity for the sake of it, but redemptive kingdom diversity. And I'm not just thinking here of, of ethnic diversity, although that's certainly included, but also generational diversity, social and economic diversity, gender diversity, spiritual and religious background diversity. We want to be a place that represents the fullness of God's image. And that's exactly what we see Jesus building in the early church in the book of Acts. He's consistently drawing to himself people of wildly different backgrounds so that the gospel might be on display in a beautiful way. And so we're called to be this, this diverse set of believers promoting what, what heaven already looks like, what the new creation will look like, to the extent that we can here and now. Or as Jesus himself put it, may your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. And so we're going to look at this kingdom diversity today. We're going to look at the need for kingdom diversity, Jesus' vision for kingdom diversity, and then our role in kingdom diversity. And so we'll start with with the need. But let me pray for us first. This is a topic that has just so much spiritual warfare, so much confusion, so many opinions. So let's just settle ourselves and ask for God's wisdom this morning. And Father, we long for the day when everything is made new, when all of these divisions between us come down fully and finally. Lord, we long for the day when people are praising you in every language that has ever existed on earth and living in perfect harmony together. We know that heaven is a, a multi-ethnic, multi-generational, beautiful place. And so, Lord, would you get us one step closer to that place today? Would you impress upon our hearts the, the truly biblical vision for kingdom diversity, Lord? Would you help us to overcome all of the, the barriers to it in our midst, God? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we'll start with the need for kingdom diversity. 
in, in my study this week, I was reminded of this story. In, in 1963, in Brooklyn, New York City, uh, Brooklyn was growing, and it needed a new middle school. And uh, this is in the Cobble Hill neighborhood. And this was uh, a school that was provisionally named uh, Intermediate School 293, or IS 293, which I think was meant to sound like either a prison or a software program. But this school was, was being built uh, for a majority black neighborhood. But a number of white families got involved, and they wanted IS 293 to be an integrated school. And so they began to write letters to the president of the New York City School Board, and they were, were having this, this huge kind of campaign to make this school uh, more integrated and to move the, the site of the school closer to the majority white neighborhood. And so there was all these letters that were written that are still uh, available today of these families talking about the benefits of diversity, how great it will be for their own kids to have a more, more beautiful education. And so after all of this, uh, all of this support, all of the persistence of the white families, IS-293 was moved, and when it was opened, it was a, a celebration of achievement and progress. There was only one problem which is that every single white family who is involved in this grand cause over the years, when it came down to it, chose to send their kids somewhere else. So this whole cohort of, of white parents who were so publicly and outwardly promoting diversity, when it came down to it, privately and quietly, they literally every single one sent their kids to private school. Now, I know this is, this is an old uh, example. We, you know, it's, it's from the 60s. But I think it, it represents something when we hear it that's, uh, that still exists in our world today. We live in a world with so much racial division. We live in a country that has such a horrific history of racial injustice. We live in a city that has an absolutely horrible history of injustice that many people don't even realize. But what happens is that we can, be, we can be mentally or outwardly committed to something like diversity, and yet when it comes down to it, it is, it is so hard for us to actually commit. Unfortunately, this is not just a, a problem in the world, but a problem in the American church. There was a book written uh, almost two decades ago called Divided by Faith, Race, and Religion in America. And I think it's one of the most important books of the last 20 years, honestly. But it states that evangelicals desire to end racial division and inequality and attempt to think and act accordingly, but in the process they likely do more to perpetuate the racial divide than they do to tear it down. Now, I think this is a, an accurate assessment of the evangelical church today, that most white believers in particular, are not, they're not consciously biased. They're not trying to, to protect their own privilege. Rather, they want diversity. And yet, the, the values and norms of American culture are so deeply ingrained that we end up making life more difficult for our non-white brothers and sisters. And as a result, the church looks just as divided as the world around us. Now, as I said, I'm not just thinking of ethnic division today, although this is a, a huge issue. But think about just within the church, the, the many different types of divisions that exist. And the way that even the, the way that we do church, the way that we do ministry helps to, to support these dividing lines remaining in place. So think about it. In, in the average church, younger and older believers are often disconnected. They're, they're placed in affinity groups. You've got college ministries, 20s groups, the, the sort of 55-plus small groups. You've got events for singles, groups for young marrieds, gatherings for families with young children. Some churches even still have like the traditional service and the contemporary service. 
And so you're literally sorting people by their musical preferences on a Sunday morning. And then, of course, as Martin Luther King put it many years ago, 11 a.m. Sunday remains the most segregated hour in American life. And it's still largely true today as churches are almost always sorted into majority white, black, Asian, or Latino churches. Now, two of my friends, Jamal Williams and Timothy Jones, they're pastors in Louisville at our sending church. They've written a great new book on this called In Church As It Is in Heaven. And they say the problem is not that we don't know what's right. The problem is that we don't love what's best. And what they mean is that we all likely agree that kingdom diversity is a, is a beautiful thing in all of its forms, and yet we don't yet pursue it wholeheartedly because it hasn't yet captured our, our attentions and our imaginations and our hearts. And so the question is, do we actually have a, a biblical mandate toward this kingdom diversity, or is it just simply a, a cultural fad right now? And so that's the second thing, Jesus' vision for kingdom diversity. And we're looking at Acts 10, and before the, the passage that we read began, uh, it's beautiful. Beginning of chapter 10, Peter is, is taking a nap. So he's been doing a lot of mission work. You know, naps are great for pastors, something we support. But Peter is taking a, a mid-afternoon nap, and he suddenly has a dream, a vision from the Lord. And he sees this blanket being lowered down from the four corners of the heavens, and on it is this huge spread of food. And it's like, it's like all just straight meat, like no, no carbs anywhere. And so you can imagine like steak and chicken and turkey. There's bison, salmon, ostrich, alligator, like even the wild stuff. Peter looks at this in verse 15, and he says, uh, Surely, Lord. I will not eat this. This food is unclean. And God says to him, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And so that's the vision. Peter wakes up because there's people knocking at the door. And as the people come into the house, it's a group of men who have been sent by Cornelius, who's a Roman centurion. So this is an Italian man. He's, he's a, a top-ranking official in the Roman Empire, has a ton of power. But it also says that he believes in the God of Israel, and he's, he's trying to obey the Israelite law. And Cornelius' men say that Cornelius has just had a vision, and that the vision, an angel came to him and said, go find this man, Simon Peter, here's the place where he lives, here's the house, find him and bring him back because he has a message for you. And so Peter is, is overwhelmed with all of, of God's divine intervention to bring this meeting about. He's had a dream and a vision. Cornelius has had a dream and a vision. It's clear that God is taking the initiative with this kingdom diversity that's going to take place. And so Peter and his guys travel to Cornelius' house, and they find a huge gathering of Gentiles, of non-Jews. And Peter says in verse 28, you are aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? And so Cornelius explains this vision that he's gathered all of his friends together because he believes that Peter has a message from God for him. Now, this moment in, in the, the history of redemption, this moment in Acts, there have been only a handful of people that have believed in the message of the gospel outside of ethnic Israel. I mean, it's only been the Israelites that have heard the gospel and believed in it. There's been a few Samaritans and an Ethiopian in, in chapter 8, but this is, this is totally different. 
Peter says in verse 34, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. And so Peter begins to, to share the gospel. He, he enters the home with all of these Gentiles, and he begins to preach the gospel about how God sent his only son, Jesus, to the earth to live a perfect life, to die on the cross for our sins. He was raised to new life in victory. And now anyone and everyone who puts their faith in him will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, regardless of background, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of anything else, anyone who believes in Christ will receive eternal life. And in that moment, verse 44 says, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The Jewish believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. And Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So we ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, as I said, this is a huge moment in the, the story of redemption, but it aligns with God's heart for diversity among his people, something we can see from across the storyline of the Bible. As far back as the beginning, God created mankind in his image for perfect unity with one another, for the praise of his glory, as Ephesians says. But it's man's rebellion against God that ends up bringing all of this separation. In Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babel, God confuses their languages, uh, scatters people all over the world in all these different groups and languages. And then it's the very next chapter, Genesis 12, where God appears to Abraham and makes this promise that all peoples on earth will be blessed. We see evidences of this in the book of Isaiah. And as a little spoiler alert, in two weeks we are starting a, a series on the book of Isaiah that will take us through the fall. I hope you're just a fraction as excited as I am because it's going to be incredible. But we see these beautiful promises throughout Isaiah that this will one day happen, and then Jesus arrives. And from the moment Jesus is on the scene, we see people from all nations, all backgrounds, all languages being accepted by our Savior. Samaritan women, Hebrew tax collectors, Roman centurions, everyone. And the early church is given this commission to be Jesus' witnesses even to the ends of the earth. And in Acts 2, when, when the Holy Spirit comes down, people hear the gospel being preached in their own languages through this miraculous outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It's literally a reversal of the Tower of Babel. And then the rest of the story of Acts is the gospel just spreading through every town, every nation, every language as people are being reconciled to God. By Acts 13, which we looked at a couple weeks ago, just about five years after this moment, there's sociologists that have argued that Christianity has already become the most diverse religion in human history within like five years, and it still is to this day. Now, how is that possible? Paul says this in Ephesians 2, Jesus is our peace. And he has made the two groups, Jew and Gentile, one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and to put to death their hostility. 
And then, of course, at the end of all things, when our Lord returns and the new creation is inaugurated, Revelation 5, as we've seen, says that persons from every tongue, tribe, and nation will worship the Lord as kingdom, as a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And so this one new humanity will become one new kingdom as heaven and earth meet. So the only solution to all the divisions of our world, the, the division between Jew and Gentile just serves as an example for every type of division that we experience in our lives. The only solution to these divisions is the reconciling work of Jesus. There is no other solution. Tim Keller said it like this, the gospel goes after the heart. While the world can say racism is a terrible thing and try to educate people's minds until it's gone, it will always come back because it's a heart issue. It's a sin issue. The gospel restructures your identity. It destroys comparison because we all stand equally as sinners and equally as children of God. And so for Peter and the, the early believers, it meant a huge change in their lifestyle and their priorities and their mission and their relationships. And so what will it mean for us? That's the third thing, our role in this redemptive kingdom diversity. And I love that phrase for a few reasons. As I said, because diversity is not necessarily an, an end in itself, although it's a good thing, but rather seeing God glorified for all time from uh, an incredibly diverse group of people. That is the end goal. And that's redemptive diversity, diversity that's rooted in our shared spiritual experience together. And as I want us to see this, this unity and diversity as part of what it means to live in Christ's kingdom. In the scriptures, God's kingdom is always God's presence with God's people and God's place. And so in the Old Testament, that looks like God's presence as a, as a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. His people is Israel. His place is the promised land and then later Jerusalem. But in this moment that we're living, this New Testament, Holy Spirit church age, God's presence is with us by his spirit. We are the people of God. And God's place is absolutely anywhere on earth. My guy, Richard Loveless, a church historian I've been studying for my uh, doctoral program, he makes this connection between the gospel and our growth and our embrace of one another. He says, Christians who are no longer sure that God loves them and accepts them in Jesus, apart from their spiritual achievements, are subconsciously radically insecure people. Their insecurity shows itself in pride, a fierce defensive assertion of their own righteousness and a criticism of others. They come to naturally hate other cultural styles in order to bolster their own security and discharge their own anger. That's a little severe, but he's saying the meanest, most prejudiced, defensive people in the world are simply insecure because they do not have the love of God. That's why every time I'm cut off in traffic and I'm tempted to get upset, I just say, good sir, what is happening in your soul that has made you so insecure apart from the love of God? Usually they can't hear me, but it's good for me. But on the other hand, when we are radically secure in the love of God, when the gospel has permeated our entire lives and we know that we've done nothing to, to earn our salvation, we are simply receiving the, the lavish, outrageous grace of God because he set his affection on us. We become radically secure. We have nothing less to, def to defend, nothing left to, to criticize, nothing to protect. 
And we begin to love and promote others simply for their good. I want to close with two applications for us as a church, two ways that I'm praying that this takes root in our own lives as a congregation. And the first is multi-generational oneness. Oneness among the different generations that exist in our church. We're a relatively young congregation here, like relative to the you know, national averages or whatever. We've got a lot of people in their 20s and, and early 30s. And, and even from the beginning, as we had a, a core group of people that started the church, it was mostly young professionals and young families. And so there could be this sense, if you're sort of just 40 plus, that you love being around the young people in the church, and, and yet it's not really for you. It's, it's their church And it's fun to be around their energy, but for the most part, you can just kind of hang back and let them serve and let them do the things and join the groups and not really fully commit yourselves to the church. And yet I've heard the same thing from even college students who say, you know, I'm not really in a community group. I don't think it's for me. I'm not in my late 20s with a baby. And so on either side, we can have people saying, you know, I love the church, but it's not really for me. I mean, we just want to say, we need you. We are, we are so much better for the multi-generational diversity that God's blessed us with than we were before. We look so much more like the kingdom of God, and we are so incredibly thankful. We were praying for years that we might get some generational diversity. And we're starting to get there by God's grace, and we just want to say, come all the way in. Like, come into the groups. Come into to serving in kids. Like, we need you. We need one another. I mean, just a year or two ago, before our community group multiplied, we had seven decades represented in the group. So 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, uh, and then the teenagers, and then the single-digit kids. Seven decades represented. And it was a little bit harder to connect with each other. It was a little bit less natural to build friendships and to kind of resonate with each other's just normal weekly rhythms. And yet it was so beautiful. It was the most incredible community group I've been a part of simply because of the diversity in age. Now, why is it so important that we have a community that that has overcome these generational lines? I read this quote from C.S. Lewis this week. It's kind of unrelated, but he said to read one old book for every new book you read. So he's writing to his students, and he said, you're reading a lot of new books. You have to read one old book for every new book you're reading. And he says, it's not because the old books don't have problems and the previous generation didn't have problems. They did, but they had different problems. And it just made me think, man, when we get together as people and there's different generational lines being represented in the church, it's not that we don't have any problems. Like, we all have probs, all right? Every group, you know, the young people, the less young, the the middle young people, we've all got problems. But they're different problems, And so how would we get wisdom for for what we're going through in life unless we can see it through the eyes of a a believer in a different life stage? How are you going to get the wisdom you need if everybody around you is within a year or two of your age? If you're a young professional, you need the wisdom of the empty nester. If you're a midlifer, you need the passion and energy of the college student. If you're a teenager, you need the snacks of the other people, basically. So, man, we just want to say invest in one another. Almost certainly, you're not the youngest person here and you're not the oldest person here. Like, we've got one of each of those. (laughs) Find someone younger than you and just invest in them. Get to know them. Ask how you can be praying for them. 
Find someone older and invest in them. Get to know them and ask how you can pray for them. Your life will be so much better because of it. And then the last thing, multi-ethnic oneness. In the same way we need one another. It's no, uh, no secret that we're a majority white congregation. I mean, you can look at me and be like, this guy was probably at a Kohl's this morning. I get it. <laughs> but we, we desperately need each other's perspectives. Desperately need each other's backgrounds. We've been praying that we become a much more ethnically diverse church than we are now. We also maintain relationships with majority black and majority Asian churches in town, and that's another great way that we promote oneness in our city. But again, our goal is not just to be diverse because it seems like the right thing to do or it looks better or it feels cool, but because ethnic diversity is our future. We are already one in Christ together, and our entire eternal lives together will be one of incredible multi-ethnic diversity. We will be completely one in Christ in every way. And so that means we pray for it now. We work toward it now. We resist that, that ongoing pull to just spend all of our time with people that are exactly like us. Think through how your life choices, where you work, where you live, where you send your kids to school can become a means of redemptive kingdom diversity. See, in our passage, the Holy Spirit falls on everyone who believes. Regardless of age, background, anything, the Holy Spirit unites us in Christ. He fills our hearts and he binds us to one another in Christ. That is the power for all of this. The Holy Spirit is what produces this in our midst. Ephesians says that every single dividing wall of hostility has been torn down through the work of Christ. And so let's, let's live like it. Let's live like that's really true, and we have this oneness in Christ through the Spirit. Let's pursue this redemptive kingdom diversity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you that your ways are not our ways and your ways are so much higher than our ways. We thank you that from the beginning you have had a plan to draw all peoples to yourself, a plan to see people from every tribe, nation, ethnic group worshiping you for all eternity. We can't even imagine what that will be like. But Lord, we long for that day. Lord, we know that you laid down your life for each and every one of us. And this salvation comes not because we've earned or achieved it, but simply because you've set your love on us and changed our hearts. And so, Lord, would you move us outward in love for one another? May our diversity be an expression of your global mission in this place, Lord. Would you help us to overcome all of the barriers that we feel naturally across our city, across our world? And you, would you put deep within us a love for people who are not exactly like us? And would you help us to reorient our lives? Whether younger, older, whatever the background is, would you help us to love one another in a deep and practical way? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.